This episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV with a special offer for you. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout for 30% off all plans. Welcome to Heavy Networking. If you're irritated with tech because they closed your case without resolving your issue, or you feel that a well-written interface description is the work of an excellent network engineer, hey, you found your tribe. To connect with more network engineers, you could join the Packet Pushers Slack group at packetpushers.net slash Slack. It's 100% free, no dark patterns, just a community service that we provide. On today's episode, I talk with Nick Carter about Flock Networks, his routing protocol stack startup, as well as Nick's love of the Rust programming language. As a network engineer, maybe you don't think you care about Rust, because after all, you're not writing the code, so what difference does it make to you how the BGP daemon you're running was developed? Nick's here to explain why the discerning network engineer might prefer their routing daemons to have been written in Rust, and certainly he's got the background. He was a network engineer and a CCIE before he was a programmer, so he feels our pain. But I am going to let him tell that story. Nick, welcome to Heavy Networking, and uh, usually we don't dive into the backgrounds of our guests on this show, but in this case, I, I think it's important. So would you take us on a brief tour of your career in IT and networking, at least up till 2019 when some things changed for you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ethan. Um, long-term listeners, so thrilled to be on the um, Packet Bushes uh, podcasts. Um, long-time network engineer and software developer. I've done 30 years in networking. Um, I've got, had a split career. I've done about 50% network engineering and 50% software engineering, and that can vary day by day even. So I still do networking now, and I'm, I'm still doing software development now. Um, to date me, my first job after college uh, was in the 1990s, deploying something called Nobel Netware, IPX protocol, um, and IBM SNA over a Cisco 75000 backbone, backbone. So that was uh, that was high tech back in the day. Um, I then moved through the enterprise space. I worked for Data General uh, on their telecoms network, back when we had separate voice and data networks. I was on the, the data networking side. I then went to Cisco for 15 years. I did some professional services where I did some design consultancies to some ISPs, and I then moved to the Cisco Ceph team. So I worked in uh, Cisco iOS Classic and iOS XR, and that was the code that forwarded the packets and programmed the hardware. Uh, I moved on from Cisco to Brocade and AT&T. I moved up from the data plane into the control plane. I worked on the Verta control plane from 2015 to 2019. And then, as you say, 2019, I quit my job. I had a midlife crisis and uh, left for... A startup with no money. Um, <laughs> so, and, so, so, yeah, you, you quit your job as a programmer doing, working with all of the, you were in the belly of the beast, man. You were right down in there working on uh, at some of the biggest names that there were and have been and still are in some cases in networking, doing programming uh, all up and down with hardware and doing all the cool stuff. And then you, and then you weren't, you quit that job in 2019. What, why, man? It sounds like you had it made. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did. Um, I've, I've enjoyed my um, career programming. Um, I've worked with lots of great engineers and, and lots of great companies. Um, but the, in, the networking industry has, has matured over the time. And when I say, for instance, when I joined Cisco, it had the feeling of a startup. And we were writing code one day and it was running in the customer's network the next day and we were getting feedback from the customer and fixing things. And inevitably, things slow down over time and the, and the, net, and the network industry matures and things get a bit slower. Um, and then I think across the board, 
these code bases now are 20 years plus old. Um, and I imagine them, well, I've, I've seen them, they're, they're like trying to add things on top of a, a stack of plates, which is sort of wobbling left and right. And you have to put your feature in the middle without bringing the, the plates crashing down. Um, and it's very hard to get new features in and it takes a very long time. Um, it also it takes a very long time to roll, roll anything out. So I wanted to do something uh, a bit more agile, um, a bit faster. Um, and really, I think the, the thing that, really got me was um, it was one of my bugs and uh, a customer did a clear counters on a, on a Cisco, I think it was a Cat 5K and the Cat 5K crashed mm. and I just thought that's as an engineer, that's awful I, th I think as a customer you can think well if I, if I type clear counters and the counters don't clear, well I understand someone's got a bug and then that signal hasn't got down to the counters and they haven't been cleared and they'll, I'll, I'll file a bug and get that fixed but I was just thinking, what, what do the customers think when they type clear counters at 2 a.m. and then the device vanishes on them? Um, and that is just something that's inherent in writing in a C or C++ language because they're unsafe. You, if you make people describe C as walking around with, with a loaded gun, so it can be quite helpful, but you can blow your, you can blow your foot off at any time. Um, and then the Rust language came along and, and fixes a lot of these issues. It's the first new systems programming language um, for, for 20 years. Um, and so on the back of that, I, th I thought, well, I'd like to write a new routing suite, which is modular. Um, and I'd also like to write one which doesn't crash when you when you clear counters and, and things like that. So <laughs> something a bit more reliable. And then the other thing I saw was that the, hard, the hardware architecture had been changing. So um, the control planes used to have a single core, which was clocked as fast as they could make it. Um, but they can't clock these CPUs any faster now. So we're moving into a multi-core world. And the current generation of routing stacks don't really run very well on multi-core. They're not, they're not written particularly for multi-core. Um, soon we're going to have like 16, 32, 64 cores available. Um, so I wanted to write a, a routing suite that could actually utilize that sort of hardware. So uh, that's what I decided to do. So you, you okay? So you you, you jump ship then to take advantage of what's new, not work on things that are old, and uh, and and really take a crack at modernizing or taking advantage of modern a modern programming language. I guess is what you're saying. Rust is. You're making the argument that it is. I think you said it's the first new systems programming language to come along in 20 years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So if, if we unpack that, um, systems programming basically means it's very fast and it means you have very fine granular control over how the memory is laid out. So um, I don't think um, you, you can't really write a routing protocol suite in something like Python or Go um, because they have a garbage collector and there's too much latency. Um, before Rust came along, there was only C and C++. So it, it doesn't matter which networking equipment you're using at the moment, it's it's built on a C and, and C++ uh, foundation. Um, yeah. And now another point you made about C is you said it's not safe. Um, and, and I think you were kind of implying that, hey, I do clear counters and the Cat 5K crashed. Uh, you know, that's an example of C not being safe. Now, does that mean it's inherently unsafe or that the programmer writing the C code has to do their due diligence to make that code safe? Yeah, good question. It's, it's, I'd dodge the question and say it's both. So if you're a perfect programmer, then you won't make that mistake and your router won't crash. Um, but I've never worked with anyone in my career and I've worked with many programmers far better than myself who, who don't make that mistake because every every line of code you write, it has the potential 
to, to crash the box. Um, and so you have to be on your guard all the time. And obviously, you, sometimes you're coding when you're tired, sometimes you're coding to a deadline, sometimes you're coding you're distracted. So as a human, you, you can't get away from that. And, and the difference with Rust is it's the compiler itself that does the checking on your behalf. And of course, the compiler doesn't sleep. If you're tired, the compiler will just moan at you more. And you might think, OK, it's time for me to go to bed and I'll carry on tomorrow because I'm, I'm not writing good code here. Um, so it's just inherent in the in the C and the C++ language, and, and and I'm not bashing them. I did C for 20 years, and it's one of my favorite programming languages. So I like Python, C, and Rust, and I'm a big fan of C. Um, I just feel like it's had its day now. Okay. Okay, fair points, and we're going to dive into Rust uh, a bit more as we go. But before we do that, Nick, I wanted to ask you about Flock, uh, Flock Networks, which you started in 2019. That's what you've been working on well, full time as a as a solo entrepreneur, a solopreneur. We'll use that fancy, trendy term, a solopreneur. <laughs> What's life been like doing that work on Flock, Nick? Um, it's been all sorts of things: exciting, scary, isolating, great, fun, painful. I, I made a list of all the emotions I went through when I quit my job and and left. Um, it was something I wanted to do, so it was a, it was a positive step. Um, obviously, going from salary to no salary is a is a, a great a great motivator, shall we say, but also quite quite stressful. Um, and in times of being isolated, I started Flock in October 2019, and of course, COVID came round. Well, probably February March 2020. So not only was I working in isolation at home with no colleagues, uh, my, my social life then vanished along with everyone else's. Um, and I was literally at home just coding and, and, and learning some bits and pieces about how to run the business. With hindsight, that was okay because I got a lot of coding done. Um, but on the other side, the sort of sales and marketing stuff, I didn't know any of that. So um, if anyone at home is thinking of starting their own startup, then there's a very good book called The Lean Startup by Eric Rees. Um, I don't know who he is. I have no contact with him, but he's, that was the best book I read by by Miles. Uh, picked that up. Um, and the other thing I got, I got onto the local university's entrepreneur program, and I got plugged in with a load of other people who could just start their own companies and were doing tech-like stuff. And that networking was really, really helpful because the hardest thing, I think, of being a solo entrepreneur is not having anyone to bounce ideas off. And especially when you're coding, if you've got a colleague and you can say, should, should I implement this? using method A or method B, your colleagues will pretty soon tell you A or B. But if you're sitting on your own and it's like, should I do A or B? It's like we you end up thinking about it so long you can't you can't think should it be A or B. So I I, I did meet up with some ex colleagues down the pub a few times and ran ran a few things um, past them. But it was it was isolating um, but also great fun because I'd never written so much code in so little time because there wasn't any synchronization to do with other teams. So normally when you're programming, you've got to you've got to work with other people and make sure that your APIs work together. Um, if I if I found a bug, I would find it and fix it. I had no bug no bug tracking system at all. If I found a bug, I would just fix it there and then. Mm. There was no QA, there was nothing else. So that 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 spread things up a lot. Um, but I haven't been on my own the whole time. So um, I got employed. I managed to um, sell a software license to a startup, um, and they employed me in January 2021. So since then, I've been on a team of five uh, software developers and, and four QA engineers. So it's been a nice mix. I think that came along at the right time. I've done enough on my own by then. 
Oh, okay. So you went from just being you on Flock to now you've you've licensed the software to a company and uh, and you're working with some of those folks to continue to develop the Flock routing suite. That's right, and and it's a it's a fair old mix of people because it's it's either veteran IP protocol programmers like myself who tend to know C and C plus plus, or it's new graduates who've come out of university knowing rust and, and don't know c at all <laughs> and it makes for a, 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 a great mix because the, the rust lot don't know the protocols and the, the protocol lot don't know rust and we've learned a lot from each other i'd say it's been a it's been a good experience and it's uh it's nice working with some young folks as well keeps you young yourself i think <laughs> Okay, so you've kind of you've made the point here that there is commercial viability for this. This wasn't just a pet project that you're like, ah, Rust is awesome and it's modern and it's going to give a give me a better result than C, so I'm just going to do this thing. There's this commercial viability and interest in Flock beyond that. But I could argue if I want to take the naysayer position, really, because there's so many routing protocol suites out there. You've got uh, Quagga and the various projects that have forked off of Quagga. Uh, oh, Vios is out there. Um, I think FRARGA has roots going back to Quagga, but there's been a bunch of new code that's been spawned in that project and and more in the open source world and the world of disaggregation. So beyond Rust, what was your motivation for Flock? My motivation was actually originally, it was that's why I called it Flock. It was to have a, a set of self-configuring routers, um, a bit like compute nodes. I was thinking the compute is still ahead of networking. We, we talk about DevOps and everything, but compute is still much more flexible than, than routing, even though we're trying to pull the control plane and the data plane apart. So I was excited about Whitebox, and I was excited about writing a control plane which automatically configured itself. So you could have a, you know, hundreds or thousands of these routers. Um, and I got that working in, in OSPF. So with OSPF B3, you can have auto router ID, and you can literally have the same config on every device and have an OSPF network um, as large as you like. Um, so for a data center or something, that's, that's, that's very powerful. And that was my initial idea. Um, but same with all startups, you, you have to pivot you know, to, to, the, to whatever someone's interested in. Um, I still would like to do that, uh, maybe with mesh networking, something like that. Um, but I think the thing for Flock now is that if someone's creating a new networking device um, and say they need a higher level of um, reliability or security, then it's, and it's a good fit. So say you were doing something in the defense world, um, say you were doing in a utilities company and you're going to put your routers out in the middle of nowhere in a, in a closed lights out place and you don't want engineers going out there. Um, I think this, the security you get um, by using Rust will, will pay back. So one of the figures that's touted around is that that Microsoft and uh, the Microsoft Windows team and, and the Chromium browser team uh, look back at their CVEs, their worst vulnerabilities in the uh, Chrome browser and in Microsoft Windows, and they found that they're, they're written C and C++. And they found that 70% of those worst bugs, the security vulnerabilities, would have been caught by Rust at compile time. So if, if you can imagine, that, you know, as people on the call are network engineers, if they could have 70% less, less security in, in instances, I mean, just that on its own is, is massive because everyone knows as soon as the CVE comes in, you've got to upgrade everything and it's all hands to the pump. Um, and, and these CVEs, they just come, keep coming and it's, it just, it's just inherent in, in C and C++. And they will sort of trend away. Um, and, then the, and the thing that the startup wanted, that's why they took a license for it. It was the only thing that would scale um, to what they wanted to do. I can't really say what they wanted to do because they're, they're just coming out of stealth. But 
uh, let's just say they want a, a, a very large control plane, a very scalable control plane. Um, and and because Rust will run across multiple cores, um, that's that's where they were interested in it. Um, so overall, I think I may be a bit early. I, th I think the industry is sort of moving towards Rust, but I think most people haven't even heard of Rust. I don't know. I don't know if you had, but I expect a lot of a lot of your listeners probably never heard of Rust yet. Well, and that's that's a fair point. Uh, if you read Hacker News, you can't escape headlines regarding Rust. There's a lot of fans on the Hacker News community uh, about that language. But if you're not a developer, and I'm I'm not a developer, I I have a computer science degree, but most of the development that I have done. Uh, goes back to my college days. I mean, that was 30 years ago. Um, I wrote C, but it was a long time ago. So I, I couldn't articulate why I might care about Russ. So maybe that's the right place to start for the, the next set of the conversation. Nick, explain to us what, what Rust is and why you're all excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, please. Um, I'm, I'm a bit evangelical about this, so uh, bear with me. I, as I said, though, I, I don't, I'm not evangelical about the next shiny thing. I've only ever got excited about C, Python, um, and now Rust. So I don't I don't flit around languages lightly. Um, so yeah, what is Rust? And as a network engineer, why should you care? Um, well, I can go back to the well. First of all, I guess in terms of how the industry is moving, I, I just read a quote from the CTO um, of Microsoft Azure, um, Mark Rissinabuch, and he said, "It's it's time to halt starting any new projects in C, C++, and use Rust for those scenarios." For the sake of security and reliability, the industry should declare those languages deprecated. So that's quite a strong statement. So he's saying, don't throw anything away that you've got in C or C++, but don't write anything new in it. Um, and the reason he's saying that is because of the security guarantees um, and, and the stability of Rust. So uh, if I, I think a lot of the listeners have used um, Python, and actually Rust and Python are quite similar. If you looked at the Rust syntax and you looked at a Python syntax, you, if you knew Python, you could just about read Rust. It's, it's that similar. If you knew Python and you looked at C or C++, I don't think you'd have much of a, a clue what was going on. And, and the reason they're similar is because Rust, even though it's very fast, it has very high-level abstractions. So if I take an example of, um, say, a BGP autonomous system path, and that's just made up of a lot of ASN numbers, now, in Python, if you had an AS path and you wanted to go along the AS path uh, and find out what the entries in there, then you could just loop over it and just say for AS AS path in there, it's ASN in AS path, and then do whatever you want as you iterate across. Because Python understands what an what an AS path is. Um, if you want to do that in in C, because it's so fast, you have to say, okay, where's the address? that my AS path starts at. Okay, I think that's the address, right? Is it a two byte or a four byte number? Okay, then I'll read two bytes or I'll read four bytes. Okay, that's my first ASN. And then what's, where's my second one? Oh, okay, now I need to go forward so many bytes. So it's a, it's a, it's a real manual parsing process. Um, and you can imagine it introduces bugs and slows you down uh, as a programmer. Um, whereas in Rust, it's exactly the same thing. You, you have an ASN in the AS path and you just iterate over it. And that high-level abstraction, you can you could in sort of ten lines of Rust, you could write the equivalent would take fifty lines um, of C. So, so same thing as in, as, in, as in the same thing as you would iterate in Python. You're saying that's right. Yeah. yeah. So a, a, a Python iterator when you have a for loop yeah. is exactly the same as a Rust iterator when you have a, a for loop. Um, so that that's quite exciting. There's, there's been some um, research that shows that 
whatever level of the developer is, they tend to write the same number of bugs per lines of code, regardless of which language they're working in. So if I was writing in C and I was doing, I don't know, 10 bugs in a thousand lines of C, then I'd also be writing 10 bugs in a thousand lines of Rust. But the difference being is that the functionality you get in a thousand times of Rust is, you know, you've done about four times the functionality. Um, and, and to go back to FRR, for instance, the, the, the FRR OSPF code is in C, and that's about 120,000 lines the last I looked. And the Rust equivalent is around 30,000 lines mm. of Rust. And it's, it's just more expressive. Um, so so that, that makes me excited. Um, but the, the, the safety thing also makes me very excited because in, in C, if, if, if you want, you can just say, I'm going to write this value to this address. And, and that's what that person did when the clear counters uh, brought the box down, but they got the wrong address. So they wrote some value into the wrong address and they could have overwritten anything. And, and luckily the box crashed. If it, in a worse scenario is the box carries on running in, a, in an insecure state. Uh, now what the Rust compiler does is the syntax, um, it's, it's got a bit more of a descriptive syntax. So Rust can track um, the size of every object in memory and where it sits. So you never have to say, go to this address and add these bytes and write that value. Same as Python. You just say, I've got an AS path. I want to change the third item in the list and I'll change it to this ASN number. So all those uh, memory insecurity bugs go away. I mean, a side effect of that as well, you, you don't get the buffer overrun. So uh, I think a lot of like heart bleed and all these bugs we get are um, in C, if you have something like a string, it's not really terminated. The, the C compiler doesn't know how long that string is. It has to read along, and then you have to, you're supposed to have a special character at the end to tell you that uh, that's the end. But if, if you're an attacker and you can get rid of that special character, or if you're a programmer and you forget to put that special character, then it will read forever until it hits that special character. And that's how you get a lot of stack smashing attacks and buffer overflow attacks. Um, and again, in uh, Rust is like uh, Python. It has a string type. It knows where the string is in memory, and it knows how big the string is. So you, you can't overrun it. You, you know where the string ends, um, and that's all done for you. So again, the, the Rust is doing these things for you. The compiler is catching these things for you. You keep comparing it to Python, saying it does the same thing as Python. So for network engineers that are familiar with pro, uh, with Python, because that's the language we've probably been working with for automation and so on, why not write the routing protocol suite in Python? Okay, yeah, good question. So so Python's not a a systems programming language, so it um, it's not fast enough, basically, um, and and you can't write to a specific address if you need to. So, so to break that down, Python's an interpreted language, so it's not compiled to a binary. It's, it's compiled to some bytecode, and that bytecode actually runs through a virtual machine written in normally in C if you're using C Python. So there's an interpretation that takes place, um, and that, that that slows you right down. Um, and then in a systems programming, oh, oh, the other big thing, of course, is is the garbage collection. So if the compiler isn't managing the memory for you, and, it, and, it's, and it's not in Python or Go or, or these languages, then the runtime has to have something called a garbage collector. So when your variables are no longer needed, the garbage collector runs and gives them back to the operating system. And when that kicks in, you have no control over when that kicks in, and, and your program stops running, and the garbage collector runs and gives the memory back. So that's OK if you're writing a Python program and you're sort of screen scraping or programming up things because if, if you stall for a few milliseconds it doesn't matter um, but if you're if you're uh, programming a data plane or if you're learning 
routes from a B2B neighbor, you can't afford to stall at, at random times. So you basically, any language that's got a garbage collector, collector is, is not considered suitable. Um, and in, in C, you have to do that yourself. So in C, you, you have to decide when to give the memory back. Um, if you give it back too soon, then you'll have a crash. Um, and if you give it back too late, you get a memory leak. Um, but in Rust, the compiler decides when to give it back because it, it knows the life. They call it the lifetime. It's basically the scope of the variable. So when the, the variable goes, goes out of scope, the Rust compiler automatically inserts a tiny bit of code just to free it in line. Uh, there it is. And that doesn't cause the inadvertent delay of a few milliseconds? Well, it's, again, it's optional. So if you want that behavior, that's that's the default. Um, but if you can't, there's, there's things that they do in C as well called like slab allocation. So if, if you want to grab a load of memory up front from the operating system and have it ready to be used and not give it back. So in very high performance computing, you don't tend to wait for the the operating system to give you memory. When, when you start, you tend to go and grab a load of memory, and then you manage that memory. And, and you can do that in C, and you can also do that in Rust. So the Rust, what they call collections, so Rust comes with hash maps and vectors and stacks and queues sort of out the box. Um, and if you, if you take memory for those, when you shrink your vector or your list back down, you hold that memory, and it's up to you to decide if you give it back, if, if you ever give it back to the operating system. Um, and if you, if you want to give it back, you can choose to do it when you're idle. Uh, and you may choose, you may think I want to keep enough memory for my busy, my busy hour. So I'm just going to hold on this, hold this memory for the long term. So it's, it's, it's completely controlled by the, by the programmer. Let's pause the podcast for a quick word from sponsor IT Pro TV. In my career, certification is how I kept improving my job situation and compensation. And IT Pro TV offers training to help you do the same. There are a couple of strategies that you can take with certs. You can skill up in an IT niche that you really like. For example, maybe networking is your thing. Okay, start with associate level certs, and then you go deeper with professional level. Another strategy is to widen your skill set. Maybe you've not done much with security, but you're interested. Great, take some cybersecurity courses and start passing cert exams, which makes a lot of sense as there's a big industry need for security professionals right now. Whatever direction you want to go. IT Pro TV's rich library of training material has you covered, offering instruction from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training taught by hosts who go out of their way to make it interesting. The course library is well-organized, and you can watch whatever you want on whatever device you have handy whenever you like. So whether you're starting out or skilling up, you can learn IT Pass your certs and make your first or next career move with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. And one more time, itpro.tv slash packetpushers. Use that promo code packetpushers at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's return to today's episode. Okay, so you would have the option then in Rust to automate your garbage collection at compile time or to control it yourself, which I, I'm assuming maybe you've done both, Nick, in your code, writing for uh, writing protocol suites? That's right. So it's interesting in protocol suites because um, we saw this at, um, at Cisco a lot as well. It's like, how much memory should you pre-allocate when you don't know whether the code's going into like a low-end home router or going to be sitting on the backbone of the internet or, or a BGP controller. So you tend to grow your memory exponentially. 
So you always tend to start with a small amount of memory. And then as you reach a limit, you sort of double each time how much you want. Um, and the flock sweep does the same thing. Now, the interesting thing to do is should you ever give some of that memory back? Because if you had keep memory for your busy hour in your 24 hours, then you've already got it for the next day when it, you know, networks tend to be busy for two or three hours a day, they hit their peak. So you can either choose to hold the memory for the peak time each day, or you can give it back and reallocate it. Um, and in the flock one, it's configurable again. So you can either say, I'll take it and keep it, or you can say, held you know, periodically, maybe every hour, every 24 hours, you, you, you can choose. I'm going to give it back when I'm idle. So it won't stall the pro, it won't stall the flock suite. It, it, the flock suite will only ever give it back when it's got nothing else to do. Hmm. But when it's got nothing else to do and that time has gone by, it'll it'll give it back. And the reason you just you maybe you don't want to hold it the whole time is that if there's been a routing mistake, either in your network or someone else's network, you, know, you, you suddenly get flooded by a million routes. You used to have 100,000 routes and you get a million routes. You, and then the, then the person the provider next to you fixes the, the issue and you go back to 100,000 routes, you probably don't want to be holding a million routes worth of memory forever. But if you if you clear it down over 24 hours, then it's probably quite a nice behavior. But, hmm. but it's really the operator who should be deciding that, I think. So Python's interpreted language, it's too slow. We don't have granular control over garbage collection. Uh, another point you made here is you said, well, also Python is not a systems programming language like C is, C++. Rust is a systems programming language. What is that distinction? What do you mean by a systems programming language? Well, there's the, the absence of the garbage collector is one. Um, being able to address any memory location is another. So I've just said to you that in Rust, you can't address memory locations. You can only address objects. Mm -hmm. um, but Rust has a keyword called unsafe, and you, you can drop into a special bit of code. And, and when you're in that code, um, you can. And the main reason that exists is if you want to interface with C libraries, you, you just need to do what C does. So and that makes it a systems programming language by being able to do that. And I'll say the third thing really is, this is a bit more nebulous, is the, the sort of multi-threading. So Python has got a global thread lock. So even though you can write multi-threaded code in Python, the, the virtual machine that's implemented in C will only ever execute one of those Python threads one at a time. So you could have a compute node with 16 cores and you could write 16 Python threads, but only one of those cores would ever be used. So the the, the multi-threading in Python is a, you know, it, it's a sort of smoke and mirrors thing. It looks like it's doing it, but it's, it's not actually doing it. Um, now in, in C and C++, uh, you can do the, the multi-threading, but the problem you get with, and the, the reason that Python has this global lock is that it's very difficult for different threads to update the same bit of memory without causing each other problems. Um, and, this, and Rust came out of Mozilla Research, and they were writing Firefox, and they were trying to write the renderer, and the renderer had to be paralyzed so it could write all the objects to the screen in parallel. And it was Firefox was written in C++, and they couldn't get the renderer to work because it had it kept on hitting these things called deadlocks. And that's when two different threads are trying to access the same memory mm. at the same time and, and both getting stuck. And, and when you get a deadlock, then Firefox would just hang on you. So they never released they never released multi-threaded um, C++ in Firefox. Um, but And they, they tried it for two years. And then someone else in Mozilla had come up with the Rust language. And he was like, hi, try this. And in six months, they, they had it shipped. They had a multi-threaded renderer. Mm. And you, you probably see they called it 
Firefox ESR or something. It's when they made the switch. And it suddenly became much, much faster because instead of using one of your cores in your machine, it can use all the cores in your machine. Um, and that's all because Rust at compile time will let you have these um, data races. So again, the compiler, it's got a richer syntax. The, co the compiler knows who's modifying the memory out of, out of different threads. And it makes sure that only one of those threads can, can manipulate it um, at a time. Um, so you can do this in C and C++. You, you tend to use things called mutexes, which is a, a, a structure which is mutual exclusion. So the C threads have to wait their turn. Um, but the trouble with mutexes is it slows you down. There's a queue waiting to get access to the memory. And the more it's OK when you've got two cores, but if you've got 64 cores, you, you've probably got 64 threads queued up trying to get access. So it gets worse and worse as you have more cores. Um, and also in C, it's not compile time check. You can forget to take the mutex, and then you can get a crash in production. You know, three weeks after you've been running, you can just hit a memory corruption. And I saw that at Cisco many, many times. Um, and that whole class of bug just doesn't exist in Rust. So the, the compiler knows, and, and it's got something called a borrow checker. And the, the rule is you can have a, one reference to be able to change a bit of memory, or you can have as many ref references as you like but you can't change the memory. So if you think of that in your head, if there's only one thread changing something, you can't get in a bad state. And if you have thousands of threads all reading but not changing it, also you can't get into a bad state because they're only reading the value. So it, it avoids the case where one of them's writing and changing the value and the other ones are reading the value and getting different values. And then and then your whole program's had it is in, in an unknown state. Um, and 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 anyway, I said at Cisco is on the uh, is on when I was on the XR team on the CSR, and we had a service provider, and their their network would work and it would work for like two or three weeks, and then one of the nodes would just lock up, and we could not reproduce this. The TAC tried to do it, and professional services tried to do it, and we tried to do it, and we just could not get a reproduction of this problem, and and it was terrible because because they were a service provider, they were having outages affecting their customers. So these are big outages, and and we had millions of lines of C, and and somewhere in there there was one of these data races, and where it locks up, even if you find out where it locks up, that's not where the problem is. The problem was where the where the corruption happened, which was millions of instructions earlier. It was when it crashes is only when it hits the problem, but the the, the root cause is way way before. So even if you get all the information from the device, the actual problem happened long before you you, you stored the information. And so we actually had to sit down as a team and go through millions of lines of C and come up with a theory what was happening. And we fixed it, in quotes, and that never, in, we, well, we don't think we ever saw it again. And as an engineer, you think that's awful because did we fix it or did we just change the layout of the program so that this very unlikely thing didn't happen anymore? So there's this ticking time bomb that might still be there. With Rust, you can't create a binary that has that problem. You can't get off the developer's workstation. So you don't have all the interruption to the QA teams and the customer teams. and the, Yeah, so it's, oh, it's just massive. I mean, as an engineer that would submit some, uh, especially in the earlier Cisco days, unusual bugs to tack, and they would come back to me and go, we don't know, we're kicking it up to the development team to to work on this. I'd always die a little inside because it's like, oh, this is going to be weeks, and we've got this you know, production-impacting bug, whatever it would be. 
And uh, now I think I have a little more insight into what was going on behind the scenes, trying to, uh, from the Cisco perspective, figure out what was going on, recreate the issue that I was able to articulate for them as I would send them show texts and all the output and give them uh, all of my configs and all that stuff and then say, here's the steps to reproduce. And they couldn't reproduce. Now I, now I know why. That doesn't make it yeah, suck any less, it, Nick, but at least, I, <laughs> at least I know what was happening behind the curtains. I think, uh, Cisco, we had the uh, tomb of the unknown bug bug. And if we couldn't reproduce stuff, we used to duplicate bugs to the tomb of the unknown bug. And it, you know, it had tens of thousands of bugs, which we just could not reproduce. Hmm. And it's not a criticism of Cisco. It's a criticism of the C language. It's that it doesn't give you the information or the checks to, to stop that happening. Um, and, you know, Having that at compile time, that's why I get so excited about Rust. It seems too good to be true. You know, how can the compiler, how can the compiler do that? If, if someone said they were going to come up with that language, I'd be like, don't bother trying. It's, that's an impossible problem to solve, in, in my opinion. But people at Mozilla did it, and we can all benefit. Well, it just feels like compiling has come such a long way since I was dealing with that mostly as a student. Compilers at that time were mostly... It's a syntax error. It is an undefined reference. It is, you know, a few things like that that were pretty basic kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Nothing that was more like, well, what you're describing, where it gets down into the guts of the program and thinks about the memory situation and garbage collection, you know, for example. That wasn't a piece of the puzzle, at least not that that I saw for the languages I was working on way back in the day. Um, so this is, this is quite, uh, it's fascinating to me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, in C, you can have this static analysis, and you can you can have a separate tool that runs against your code and tries to find vulnerabilities and flaws and things. And um, they tend to be very noisy; you don't quite know what's a real a real problem and what's not. But it's like that static analysis has been taken and put into the compiler. So they're like you say, they're not compilers used to just create a binary; that was their job, just to create a binary. But now the Rust one is, I'm only going to produce a secure binary, and I'm going to do this static analysis during compile time, and that is a also could be a criticism of Rust is that the, the compile times are much longer than C or C++, mostly because of all this extra checking that's going on. But I would rather spend the time at, at the compilation time and, and not have the bug go out the door because it's, it's much faster to fix the bug well before it exists. So Nick, let's circle the wags and see where we are. Uh, if we're talking about Rust as a compare and comparing it to C, C++, we're talking that Rust brings us memory safety. It is uh, data race free in that multi-threading scenario we were talking about where, you know, accessing the same piece of memory by two different threads. Uh, we're avoiding that data race condition. There's protections in there. Uh, Rust is more appropriate than Python uh, because Python is not a systems level programming language, even though there may be some similarities in the language structure. If you were to look at it, Python's not the right place to do that sort of work. So we need Rust there. Um, you mentioned Rust uh, solves the multi-threading challenges for Firefox. Uh, where else is Rust showing up? I know there was some recent uh, recent article I remember reading that Rust is making its way towards the Linux kernel in uh, in fits and starts. I think. Yeah, yeah, exciting times. So there was a move to try and get C plus plus in the Linux kernel many years ago, but Linus Torvalds put put a stop to that. He's he's not a fan of C plus um, plus. So I think the Rust developers approached. Uh, Linus Torvalds with trepidation about about putting Rust in because the, the Linux kernel is 100% C. There's there's nothing but C in there at the moment. Um, but actually, it was it was well received. Um, they have made some changes to the Rust language. They've they've made a, what's called a fallible allocator. So when you ask for memory, the the operating system can say no. They've, they've actually tweaked the Rust language a bit or extended it to suit the kernel. 
Um, but a lot of hard work has gone in. And so Linux 6.1, which is the current RC, there's, there's a merge request out or a pull request out to add Rust support, um, which will then allow you to write device drivers in Rust. So that will be, I'm, I'm super excited about that. It's, it's supposed to be a formality that that goes in. I think there's only a single device driver that's written in Rust at the moment that's going into the kernel. Um, and they're being quite cautious. So if there's a device driver written in C or written in and one written in Rust for the same device, when you compile by default, you'll take the C one. So you'll only use the Rust one if it's the only one available, um, unless you want to change that setting when you're compiling. If you're a Rust developer, you'll just say, oh, give me all the Rust stuff and I'll I'll debug it. Um, so I think I think it's wise that they've gone for the device drivers because a, they sit on the outside of the kernel, so they're not rewriting the core of the kernel, which of course would be a, a huge failure because it's too complicated. It'll have to be a, a piece by piece change if they do it. Um, and secondly, if, 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 if there are problems, then it's only going to affect that one device and, and not affect everyone who's running the kernel. Um, but again, with my evangelical Rust hat on, um, the Rust drivers should be a lot safer because I think when people write device drivers, the first thing they do is they look for a similar device. Doesn't matter if they're if they're writing a C device driver or, or a Rust one. They look for a similar device. They'll take that as a template, and they might just tweak something here or there and, and, and make it work for for their device. Um, whereas with Rust abstractions, um, for instance, in Rust, you know if you're uh, in a in a function, you know if you're writing to memory or if you're reading from memory. So again, the, the compiler will enforce that in the function signature. So if if you have a a device driver, like an Ethernet card, and you send it a thing saying, I want to read how many packets you've you've sent out of your interface, then, then the C1 will tell you how many packets, and the Rust one will tell you how many packets. And then if, if the C1, if you make a mistake and say, all right, I want to clear the counters on that Ethernet interface, um, and you're not allowed to do that, or, or you're going to the wrong address, then the C1 will just go and do that. Uh, the Rust one won't compile. The Rust one will say, well, hang on, this is a read-only function. You're trying to write to a memory address. You can't. You can't. The compiler says no. So there's a lot of hand-holding that goes on, and, and I think a lot of infrastructure has gone in for, device, for writing device drivers. So there's, there's almost like a, a small shim library, um, which you, so you don't need to plug directly into, into the kernel. You can, you can plug into this Rust shim and, and just write just boiler, boilerplate code, really, to, to go in. And, and the performance is good, too. They, I can't remember what the, what the driver was. I think it was a, a GPU driver. Um, and the person got it within something like 0.2% of the C1. And, and the guy who maintained the C1 was like, that's extraordinary because I've been, I've been optimizing this driver for like five years, and, and this is your first version. So, you know. Well, let's take this background knowledge we've got in Rust now, Nick, and, uh, and see how we're doing with, uh, see how you're doing uh, with flock networks and applying some of these things. So one of the advantages you mentioned was the ability to write multi-threaded code with, uh, well, I guess basically with more confidence. Not that you can't do it with C or C++, you certainly can, but you can do uh, multi-threaded code in Rust with more confidence. How are you doing with Flock and scaling across multiple cores then? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so it's a moving target because we're adding features so fast. Um, the uh, Currently, um, so a router with four logical cores, um, it can do a billion PHP route updates across a thousand neighbors in a minute and a half. Mm. So that's a lot faster than anything else I've tested. Um, and some other implementations don't, you know, they, they run for four or five minutes and then don't finish. They just sort of, they just halt or crash or whatever. So, Did you say a billion to a thousand neighbors, a billion routes to a thousand neighbors or a million routes to a thousand neighbors? I said a billion 
Um, but I said updates. So updates, yeah. I guess it depends how you measure it. But I'm saying you've got a thousand neighbors. You've actually got four million routes. So you've got a million routes in the route table. Each route's got four paths. Yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. four million routes yeah. times by ten thousand. So that's how the, how the numbers go up. So it's not a billion routes in the in the rib because that'd be yeah. a lot. Of, you yeah, need yeah. that memory, but it's 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 a it's a billion up, updates being processed until it's converged to to a stable state and, gotcha. and decided what, what what to send on. Um, and and yeah, so the the way the, the flock approach is quite different. So there's a, there's a white paper of people interested on on the flock uh, website, and I talk about sort of three generations of routing um, suites, and and the first one would be Cisco Classic and Bird. And, and things from that era, and they were single-threaded. So I, I guess people might know, but if you if you're I think it's iOS XE now, but if you're doing BGP and it's running, you're not you're not doing OSPF, and if you're doing OSPF, you're not doing the rib updates, and if you're doing an API upper state request, you're not doing anything. So there's only one thread running, and it's doing everything, which is it's quite extraordinary. It's scaled so far, and the reason it scales so far is that because you've only got one thread, you've only got one memory heap, and you, you can share memory very very fast. So it's fast, but also you can crash the box very, very fast too. So that's where we were, you know, back in the 1980s or 1990s. And then iOS XR came out, and Junos, um, and and all the others, and, and, and FRR, and they split the protocols into different processes, and then they used a CPU to give memory um, uh, memory separation between the processes. So the Intel chip came out with this memory protection, and then the processes can't stamp on each other's memory. So that's good. So then things got more stable, but they got a lot, they got a lot slower. So if BGP wants to send 10,000 routes down to the rib, it has to copy them into the kernel or onto some bus. Um, and then the rib has to copy them off the bus into rib. And that's you know, that's thousands of K of, yeah. of bytes. It's, it's expensive. And so, so those the, the current suite of routing protocol suites are quite, so I call them heavyweight. They're not too kind on the hardware. But when with this uh, Rust compile time memory safety, you can sort of combine the two. So so Flock runs in a, a single process. So you have the fast message passing, um, but it's multi-threaded. So all the cores are loaded. So if you want to send 10,000 routes in Flock from BGP down to the rib, you just pass a 16-byte pointer from one from the BGP component down to the ribs so is 16 bytes, and that's it. And there's a there's a Rust compile time guarantee that once BGP has sent it to the rib, BGP can no longer touch it, and it's owned by the rib. So you, you <clears throat> that's why it's so fast, really. So you got any, you're not copying data around between processes, um, but it's also stable in that you can't stomp on each other's memory uh, on on the multi-threading. How and, many cores uh, can uh, can you scale to these days? Well, the most I've done is 64, um, but I didn't, I didn't get any sort of linear scale to 64. Um, that's what I'm aiming for, um, is to get, obviously, if you, if you double the number of CPUs, you'd hope you'd roughly double yeah. the performance. It's very hard to achieve. It's, it's not too hard to do on low number of cores. Um, so I'm getting linear scale up to 16 cores. Um, if anyone wants to Google the Armdahl's law, there's a, a graph on Wikipedia. But if you want to go above 16 cores, you need to get about 95% of your hot path code running in parallel on all the cores so it's it's quite a high bar no one's no one's anywhere near that at the moment um but i think with rust we can do it um so what what the second generation suites tend to do is they have a pipeline so they might have a thread that reads your update from the bgp neighbors and then they have a thread that programs the bgp route table and then they might have a thread that sends it off to the neighbors as, as updates so you might have sort of three stages in your pipeline um and the trouble with that is that 
each stage in the pipeline can't scale. So you end up putting a thread pool at each stage. So you then have a, a read from neighbor thread pool, a compute rib thread pool, and a send to neighbor thread pool. And it soon gets incredibly complicated and not very efficient because you're passing all these messages between the threads and you get latency along the, along the pipeline. So Flock doesn't have a pipeline. Um, Flock has a thread pool, which, it, which when it boots, it just looks at how many CPUs you've got in your device, and it creates a thread pool with a thread per CPU. So if you've got 16 cores, you'll have a thread pool with 16 cores. And then the flock, in the flock code, anytime you want to do something in parallel, it just sends that code into the thread pool. So it'll read from the BHP neighbors using the thread pool. It'll do, it'll compute the BHP rib table using the thread pool, and it'll send to the BHP neighbors using the thread pool. And it's only one thread pool, which is another massive advantage because there's no contention then between your threads. So if you've got a thread pool at each stage on the pipeline, then they're they're trying to run on the CPU. So the CPU is oversubscribed then. But with the flock one, you've only got a thread per core. So you've got 16 cores, you've got 16 threads. There's no contention. Um, and at the same time, OSPF can be flooding LSAs in parallel. Um, you can have requests coming in on the API in parallel. You can program a data plane in parallel. Um, and, and you can do this with confidence because of the, of the compile time checks. So I so say we're, we're scaling to 16 cores linear now. Um, and then as our rate of functionality is decreasing now, we've, we've implemented most of what we want. And I think now it's the time to put more and more of that code into the thread pool, which is, is basically making just these, to make the compiler happy and, and it's done. Um, I think you described it as, as as hot code, right? Along uh, along each thread, just adding more to each to each thread, which will enable improve the scaling, uh, get getting you closer to linear scaling, right? That's right. So it's, it's impossible to get. You know, what I'd like to do is get to ninety five percent hot hot path um, running in parallel, um, but it, you can't get the whole code base to that. And for some things, there's no point. So if you're reading the config on boot, there's there's very little advantage in making that super fast. Mind you, some devices do take a long time to boot, but <laughs> Flock, Flock doesn't take a long time to boot. Um, so that BGP test with the billion updates, that was from startup. That was from, that was from the process not running. So it just starts instantly. Um, but if, you know, if, if an operator says, oh, show me the BGP neighbors or whatever, there's not much point in making that multi-threaded um, because that request probably comes in at most once a minute. Maybe it comes in once every half hour. The bits you really want, the hot path is I've received a BGP update. I need to process that right to the end until I've in my my final state or I've received an OSPF LSA. I need to process that to my uh, to the end. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm waxing lyrical here, but something like OSPF, you, you, you can't really paralyze the SPF calculation. It's inherent in the, in the algorithm that you can't. There were some people at MIT who tried to, and they, they used about 16 cores and they ran about 0.2% faster. Mm. And they, they just concluded this algorithm is just not suitable for, for parallelization because you're trying to find the shortest path and there is only one shortest path. So you, you can't do anything on the side. Um, but what Flock can do is if you've got multiple verfs, we can run SPF in parallel in the thread pool across the multiple verfs. So then, then you've got different SPF sessions running in, in right. parallel. Yeah. So yeah. the amount of parallelization you can do is is Unending. You just you just need to do the performance testing to make sure it's worthwhile what you're doing, rather than just go mad with Rust and I'm going to paralyze everything <laughs> because I can. Well, let's talk about features. Um, it, when we were prepping for this show, you described Flock to me as a drop-in replacement for uh, free-range routing FRR uh, or Bird. You, you've really got that much that many features baked in to to have feature parity there. 
Um, uh, yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, put me on the spot. Um, I, I think bird and FRR actually are, are quite different, and and then flocks slightly different again. So, from what I've seen of bird, and I've, I've looked at the bird code a lot, and it's very very high quality. It's written in C, but it's the cleanest C I think I've ever, se- I've ever seen, and it's really well architected. Um, but bird seems to have sort of cornered the market in 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 being in the BGP side of things, right. and maybe as a, a, a route server or for, for large BGP pairings. Although it has OSPF and other protocols, I, I don't see it deployed. Um, I could be wrong. Um, I think m- mainly because it's that old. It's from the generation it's single-threaded. So if you turn on OSPF, then you're not running BGP, and you have to start multi. That, that one thread has to start multitasking between different protocols. So I think Bird is very well suited for, for BGP and an excellent implementation. Um, but but it's it's narrowly focused. Um, whereas for FRRs, the opposite really. It's more like the Swiss Army knife of, of routing protocol mm. suites. It's, it can do everything, um, and it can do everything in combination. And it's awesome, and it's also frustrating because, I mean, the Vios code I worked on at AT&T and Brocade, that's a fork of, uh, of Zebra and, and Quagga. Um, and and it, it shows its age. Each bit of code has been written by a highly qualified engineer, but the architecture has sort of been lost over time, um, and it's it's become, well careful what i say but it's it's, it's difficult I, I i struggle to fix bugs in 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 the frr um certainly in the viata one i tried to draw all the um data structures and their relationships in the ospf code and i couldn't it, it ended up like a, a spider's web with mm. these c pointers everywhere and again not a criticism it's, that's how you write stuff in c if you want some information you just put a pointer and stitch another connection between one bit of data and another bit of data and it makes it fast but you don't understand who owns this data now. It's, it's, it's been pointed at by five different things, but who owns it? When do I get rid of it? And when do I create it? And it's really difficult. Whereas Rust won't let you, won't let you do that. And, and, and when I first started writing OSPF in Rust, I struggled because I tried to write it in a C-like way. And, and compiler kept saying, no, you can't do that. And no, you can't have a shortcut. And no, you can't point your interface at your SPF routine. But it made me step step back and, and spend a lot of time on getting the data structures right. <clears throat> and and the flock OSPF data structures, I could, you know, I could draw them on a whiteboard and explain them in in 30 minutes. It's it's basically more of a tree shape. Um, so there's no cyclical graphs in there. And it's it's very you can just look at the, the diagram and you, you know who owns what. So you have your OSPF area, you have your OSPF interfaces, you have your OSPF neighbors, and it's just a tree coming down nice, nice and cleanly. Um, uh, so anyway, sorry, is, is that a drop-in for FRR? So uh, it doesn't have, Flock doesn't have some of the things FRR has. It, it doesn't have EIGRP. Um, it, it doesn't have RIP, uh, V1 and V2. Um, I don't know if people still want RIP, V1 or V2. I guess I'll find out if they do. It's I a, can't it's imagine a, a big demand. There may be some niche no. use cases out there, but yeah. Um, so it, it's it's there or thereabouts. Um, but I, I thought what I found also with, with Rust is the, the, the time to develop a new feature or a new protocol is much faster because, I, like I said, the expressiveness of the language. You're leading me into my next question because there's oh. a video of me where I was, uh, I, I fired up a very early uh, flavor of Flock where there was just, it was like an initial implementation of OSPF. You hadn't gotten very far with it at that point. This goes back to 2020 maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're telling me you've developed tons and tons of features within OSPF and BGP and whatever else within the space of two to three years? Yeah, although, like I said, for the last 18 months or 19 months, there's been five of us working uh, on it yeah, in, in, in parallel. So that obviously sped things up a lot. 
but uh, <clears throat> I also surprised myself like in how fast I got the, the protocols working. Um, so that OSPF implementation that you used, and I think I had a look before the call, it was in March um, 2020, and I started developing that in October. And there's no way I could have written OSPF implementation plus a rib. It also programmed NetLink to the kernel and had a basic REST API and a, and a config, you know, very basic config system. Um, if someone had asked me to do that in C before I'd used Rust, I'd write, there's no way in those timescales I can do that much work. Um, because of the expressiveness of it, it makes it faster. Um, and the other thing that Rust encourages you to do is to have a, a, a mocking infrastructure. So instead of running system tests on the real hardware, um, Rust comes with a, with a tool where you can wrap your application up and, and test it with, in a test harness, harness from the outside. So the first thing I did with OSPF was I wrote an OSPF test harness, which pretended to be an OSPF neighbor and sent in LSAs and sent in hellos and stuff. Um, and that, <clears throat> that really sped up the development because I had this test harness. I did the same for on BGP. And I remember on BGP because I started it on the 1st of April and I finished it on the 1st of June. And that's only the, the base RFC, um, uh, which is, I forget the number of it, but, but, but that's the base one. And so that was eight, eight weeks. Um, and I haven't had to touch that code really since. It's, it's stable. I wrote unit test integration tests at the same time. And I would imagine in C, that would have taken me over six months. So I'm, I'm looking at a three times speed up to get feature mm. work done. Um, you times that by four, four or five, four other developers. Um, and, and you can see, so we've got OSPF v3, v2, um, segment routing, BGPM plus VPN, uh, BFD. Uh, we've got uh, a generic um, config um, and operation state um, API, so you can program it with, with anything really, with you know, Yang or Open Config Yang or NetConf for REST. Or there's so many things. I just thought I'll, I'll just support them all. So you just you just transform it into into a flock event and and off you go. Um, so yeah, it's 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 and the other thing is you don't get the hardest bugs, so you don't get stuck in your tracks. In C, when you get one of these bugs which you find hard to reproduce, that's a, that's a day of coding gone. You can spend a whole day just trying to reproduce a bug you've seen, and, and you can't get it to happen again. Um, whereas in in Rust, your your set of bugs is limited to logic errors. So if it doesn't work, it's because you know you've done something, you've implemented something wrong on the RFC. You've you've received some packet and you haven't sent a response or or something. So you, you can forget about all the low level stuff and, and just concentrate on the on the functionality. In C, you have to have both in your head. You have to have the functionality and the low level. Who owns this bit of memory? And should I give it back or should I give it to someone else? So, so a takeaway here is you've written some full protocol implementations, OSPF v2, v3. Uh, you mentioned BGP is uh, mostly there. You mentioned segment routing is mostly there, uh, BFD, et cetera. But the, the takeaway is that almost isn't the point, what's in there. It's if someone wants something else to be added to the Flock Network suite, you can bring it to market in a much shorter time frame than if you were writing in C. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, the, and the Flock routing suite itself is actually a, a crate, which is the Rust term for a library. So it's written in a way that the core protocols are a library. And then I've written a, a platform-specific um, shim layer to get it working on Linux. So the shim layer does netlink and does the uh, reads the config from disk. But the actual core protocols are a library and they can be ported and put into any operating system and into any device. So yes, you can you can you can get started quickly. Um, 
if you if a customer wants to do a completely new protocol, then it'll be faster, but they'd have to implement that protocol from scratch. Um, but the startup who's using it at the moment, they want to sort of tweak a protocol. So the library's got hook points in it. And if people know about the Linux kernel and stuff, you can have these sort of net filter hook points where you can grab grab packets and mangle them. Um, in Flock, you've got hook points into the OSPF and BGP code base. So you, for instance, if you want to have a different BGP decision process, you can just write one function. And instead of doing the normal BGP comparison about AS path length and whatever it is, 13 steps, you could just write your own function and say, I want the cheapest, I want the, I want the cheapest US dollar cost route. And you could then put a US dollar cost in your BGP update. And you could have that as a, so the hook point when you send and receive to neighbors where you can you can put extra things into the into the update packets uh, of whatever you like. Um, and the other nice thing is that you can choose, you can have both running at the same time. So you can have your hook point active to one neighbor. So you can do your, you can do your special source to one neighbor, um, but you can have your RFC behavior to a customer router. So they only see RFC behavior, but internally you can do you know, whatever you like with metadata and filly boots. Mm. Did you get? Did it get easier to write Rust as you went along, starting in 2019? Because I, I say that from a perspective of Python, where that's what I've been spending most of my time writing in lately. The standard library by itself is so big; is you can spend hours and hours just reading through Python documentation, trying to get your head around what all the standard library is offering to you and your use cases for it. There's tons of it there, let alone all the other libraries that have been written that you're using to make your life easier. Is Rust like that? Are you still are you still getting better with Rust three three odd years on? Yes, Rust is very much like that. I mean, I, I like C because it's a small language. I guess the criticism of Rust is it's not as small as C. It's 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 still quite a small language, but it, like Python, it's sort of batteries included. And there's a the standard library's got a lot in it, and then there's other people's libraries which can do pretty much anything now. Um, and that was interesting because I I had to stay very focused on actually getting. I thought my minimal viable product was basically OSPF and BGP config system and an upper state system. And I was laser focused really on getting those done. And I wasn't hunting around for exactly the right data structure to use. And that was quite interesting because when the other guys joined me in January 2021, uh, 2020, yeah, 2021 some, <clears throat> some of them were Rust experts which I'm not. I mean, I'm getting there. I've done three years now, but I wouldn't call myself a Rust expert. Um, and they turned up and said, oh, hey, why are you using this um, data structure. Didn't you? Didn't you know the standard library has this data structure? And I was like, mm-hmm. really? Right, great. And then a lot of code would then vanish as they came along and, and swapped out my implementation of something that was already in the standard library. So mm-hmm. I'm still learning. Yeah, every day I'm still learning from these guys. You know, they're more sort of in their twenties and stuff. Um, and Rust has also got a bit of a computer sciencey bent to it. It's slightly like Haskell or sort of functional programming so there's an interesting dynamic between people who want to write imperative code like python and, and, and or people who want to write functional code like haskell the functional code's all sort of computer science and your mm-hmm. imperative code is all computer engineering and then we have a debate about where where's the sweet spot between the between the two you can go too far on either either of them to be honest uh, a couple more questions for you, Nick, as we uh, as we wind down the podcast. Uh, one is, what platforms can Flock run on? It's compiled, so I'm assuming we got lots of possible targets. Uh, yes, I made a list actually. Then you're going to ask me. So, so the Rust compiler has a, a long list of targets, um, and it's sort of tier one, tier two, tier three, and then sort of best effort. Um, so, tier one, which is the best supported, that's got x86, 32 bit, x86, 64 bit. 
ARM V6, V7, V8, and RISC V. So that's pretty much because this isn't for the forwarding hardware. This is for the control plane. So I think that covers most of the chips you'll get in a, in a router control plane. Um, it also does more esoteric stuff like PowerPC and MIPS. And uh, I mean, there's pages and pages of, of, of targets. I think you can even do IBM, old IBM system 760 or something. So, um, so basically, it'll it'll compile to to any any target that's available. Um, and the other thing I'd say actually is that you can actually compile it to, with a switch so that it, it compiles as a single thread. So if you, if you did want to deploy it in a, you know, a low-end home router or like an Internet of Things device, you can actually say at compile time, okay, get rid of the thread pool, get rid of the master thread for BGP, get rid of the master thread for OSPF, get rid of everything, and you can run the whole thing in a, in a, in a single thread, um, same as iOS Classic, but without the crashes. Um, and you could, I, I swear you could not do that in C or C++. You couldn't have the same, the same code base, which you could compile to a single thread or to 64 threads. It, you just, I just wouldn't attempt that in, in C. It's, it's just something that comes with the language. Another question. Flock is uh, not open source. This is a commercial venture. So I, I can't go download some implementation of Flock if I, if I wanted, right? Um, no. Well, it's, I guess there's a, a differentiation between open source and being able to download um, the binary. Um, so I used to have... It's never been open source, and it's not open source. Um, I used to have a binary on the website, and that was downloaded by a, a handful of engineers who quite liked it back in the day. Um, but I've been so busy with the startup and everything, I haven't done a release on the website for about 12 months. Um, but if anyone wants to play with it, I'm more than happy to do a, a binary off off the latest and, and get feedback, and they can use it. Um, but, it's the, but the source code isn't open source. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um... Oh, okay, so people could reach out to you, but you, commercially, you're, who who is your target customer for Flock? Who would be licensing this from you typically? Um, so I think it'd be um, either manufacturers, so people who are creating their own devices, um, or people who are doing networking as, as their business, so ISPs, uh, telcos, cloud providers. So either you're running your own network or you're building your own network. Um, and then you, you might want anyone who's going to create a network device, really. So it's, it's quite a niche um, it's you, well. It depends what you're going to do with it. If you just want a vanilla Linux routing stack, then you can just drop it in, and you don't. You just need the binary, and you don't need any expertise. Um, but if you want to start extending it with your own protocols, um, then of course you you need to be technical, and you need to have some Rust, pro, Rust programmers um, and to, to do that. Although most of the code's written, you just need to write some sort of plugins mm. um, here and there. Okay. But for anyone that's using it commercially, um, whether it's just, I, I have Linux and I want to run Flock as my routing protocol suite and now I'm you know, a consumer of it, I'm paying Nick a license to do that, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. But, but, but it's the source code that's licensed, not the binary. So if you buy the source code, you can, you can have as many binaries as you like. It's, it's the access to the source code. So you'll have a, you know, a license in perpetuity to develop your own product using that code base. Understood. So the closing question here is kind of a loaded one, Nick, and, and it's this. Is is Rust the future? Are we going to see all this C and C++ code that's out there? Is that all over time going to be replaced by Rust, do you think? Yeah, I think we should actually rewrite everything in Rust probably in the next two weeks. <laughs> well, I think you were both serious and tongue-in-cheek when you said that, huh? <laughs> no, there's a, there's a meme on the internet about rewrite it in Rust, and there's lots of annoying Rust programmers who turn up at, at C projects and say, you should rewrite this in Rust for, for, for no reason. And like, these C projects have been 
working fine for like 20 years and they're super fast and they're all really good and they're very hard to write and there's millions of dev days of element in them and it's like yeah rewrite it in rust and it's like yeah thanks for that so so no i don't think we should rewrite it in rust um i do hope over time rust um takes over i think technically it wins um but i think um we, you know the technical the history of technology is littered with superior technologies that didn't you know, didn't take off and were, mm. were, were beaten by something that got to mar market faster or got, had more money behind it or, you know, so just being technically better isn't enough. <clears throat> I think the engineers love it. It's been, it's been top of, top of um, Stack Overflow survey, most loved language for at least four or five years. So I think the engineers like it and technically I think it wins. Um, it's, it's what the business people think. Um, but at the minute it's got, it's got some wind behind it because there's a Rust Foundation which has got Microsoft um, Google, uh, Amazon, Meta, and Mozilla. It's, it's got the big names mm. um, behind it. And, and I know that all those companies have, have done some open source projects in Rust and they've, they've rewritten some of their, some of the Chromium browsers in Rust and Firefox in Rust. And I know that the Amazon Firefly virtual machines, they do their, their serverless functionality and it's, it's a Rust VM. So mm. Rust is sort of spreading its tentacles all over the place. Um, and in fact, I went to a I went to a C and C plus plus meetup in, in where I live, and there was no Rust programs there at all. And and they said they're about my age, and they said, uh, "Do I need to learn Rust, or can I get to retirement?" <laughs> and and and, and I'm I'm 53, so they're probably thinking, "Have I got another 10 years?" And I was like, "You've easily got another 10 years programming C and C plus plus because yeah. there's so much of it around, and it's it's so widely deployed." But I, I think over they're starting to teach Rust in universities now, so I think over time. It'll it'll gradually move across, but you can't do a big bang on systems programming stuff. It's, you can't. Oh, it's, it's funny how long certain languages last. Back in the eighties and nineties, when I was in uh, in university studying computer science, the discussion was around COBOL. The this program oh, yeah. put a big emphasis on COBOL, and is it still going to be around? Should I be learning this now or learning? something else and long story short it's the 2020s and there's still plenty of cobalt code around this being maintained in certain niche markets so it's yeah some things just have very long life yeah yeah that's right and i suspect you can get a good a good payback if you know cobalt because probably no one else knows cobalt <laughs> right not many people left at this point no they were uh, retired so nick carter how can people reach out to you if they want to know more about flock or just ask you some questions etc um, yeah, the best place is the website. So that's uh, flocknetworks.com. Um, and there it's got a, an email address, which is info at flocknetworks.com. Um, there's some white papers up there. There's some blog posts. Um, there's a brochure about what I'm actually selling so people know what's in it. But it's all quite technical stuff. So if you're engineers, don't get, to, don't get put off. It's, there's some substance in it. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. So Flock Networks on Twitter and Flock Networks on LinkedIn. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear from people because I'd like to, many, many people um, downloaded the binary, um, like hundreds of people downloaded the binary, and I probably heard from 20. Hmm. So I'd rather, if, you know, if, if people want, do want to use it and they want to copy or they're just, just interested in how it works, then uh, yeah, please email me or contact me on LinkedIn. I'd, I'd love to hear from people. And, and, and again, you'll share a, a more updated binary than what you might have shared in the past? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Great stuff, Nick. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my thanks, man. What you're doing at Flock is uh, is very cool, and your insights into the Rust programming language, what's going on in the world of uh, C, and some of us that have been victimized by bugs, kind of knowing what's going on behind the scenes. Great conversation. Very much appreciated, Nick. And uh, thanks to you out there for listening all the way to the end. You are an awesome human. You're doing a tremendous job. 
Now, if your only connection to the Packet Pushers is this podcast, Heavy Networking, you're missing out on a lot more free information that we share with you, which you can find at packetpushers.net. We have a lot of podcasts, including the newly launched Kubernetes Unpacked with instructor and consultant Michael Levon, Day 2 Cloud with me and Ned Belavance, and IPv6 Buzz with Ed Horley, Scott Hogue, and Tom Coffeen. Several other podcasts as well, plus our newsletter, engineering articles, white papers, and more. No reg walls, no gateways, just go get what you want. We don't need to know who you are for you to get access to all the things that we're offering at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. I have been Ethan Banks. You can follow me on Twitter at ECBanks and find me me on the Packet Pushers Slack group. My DMs are open and I welcome your questions and comments. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.